it was kind of an accident, honestly. I mean, obviously, like, my last record, uh, A Rock, had, like, um, a little bit of foreshadowing that maybe I was leaning a little bit more into the rock world with, like, Boots and Ain't a Bad Day and uh, maybe a couple others. Um, but I, I have a handful of people. David Garcia plays a really big hand in bringing that rock side out of me and, like, he, he wrote the riff for Kill Shit Till I Die. He wrote the riff for um, I Ain't In The Country Anymore. A bunch. He's he's really brought that out of me. And so basically I would write like uh, Jack was the first song that I wrote for this record before I knew that I was writing it. And uh, we finished it. I turned it in. My manager, Seth and Joey, were like, this is pretty dope. It's pretty heavy, but it's, you know, and, and in the, speaking in the country sense, right? Yeah. And But then I wrote uh, Red, and that's like a very country song. And then, again, kind of accidentally, I wrote, you know, 30 out six. And then I wrote beer. And it just, after I had about six of each, we looked down and we were like, damn, we kind of have like a half rock, half country thing going here. Why don't we just chase after that? And so then the rest of the writing process became a little bit more intentional where I would go in and be like, okay, I'm missing one good rock song with this kind of feel. And, and then, you know, go in and say, I'm missing a country song. And, and so the rest of it became, um, uh, you know, a little more uh, intentional on purpose. But at first it was just kind of writing and sort of look down and realize that we already had been working on like a half and half kind of deal without knowing it. So on the title track, you know, the lyrics in that song, it sounds like you dealt with some kind of doubt maybe going into the rock side of things. Can you speak about maybe some of the challenges you dealt with with that? Yeah, I mean, they were all internal. None of that, all the challenges that I faced, I think were like uh, internal and just being a little apprehensive uh, towards making the switch. Or I won't say making the switch, but like, you know, because I will always, I will always be and want to be considered a country artist, but I also, I want to be considered a rock. I want to be able to do both. But uh, yeah, there was just a little bit of a battle and, and it's, you know, the, it's an uphill battle when you're doing something um, like different or against the grain. And it's a lot easier when you are the mockingbird and you're, you're, you know, putting out songs that are easy to listen to and they're radio songs. Um, and so it was just the internal battle that I had between, you know, and, and, and the Mockingbird side of me is also a little bit of the songwriter side of me that, like, I write douchey bro country songs for the radio. And, that's, I mean, that's just, it sucks. But, like, I'm, I'm kind of a part of the problem when it comes to writing country songs and, and kind of the, the issue or the, the struggle of, like, how much I want to keep doing that as opposed to really just leaning into the rock thing. And a lot of people don't know this, but in the line, like, do this, do that, and that shirt and this hat, a lot of people think that that's the label like a label head or something That's talking to me, it. but it's my, I'm, it's, I'm talking to myself. Right. It's the mockingbird talking to the crow saying, no, 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 don't be doing all that shit. Like just stick to the format kind of thing. And so it's, it's all kind of in my head. That's cool. And I can see how as an artist, you would feel the need to second guess yourself because you're under so much pressure at the level that you're operating at. And hopefully as I'm confident, they will. The rock fans will open you, welcome you with open arms oh, dude. based on what I've heard. Man, I have been, <laughs> It, I've been blown away at how much like rock radio and guys like y'all and rock artists have reached out. I'll, I'll look up and be like, oh my God, so-and-so is like following me on Instagram or reached out and said, hey, dude, I'm a fan. And that, just to know that I, be, I've, I have been or am being accepted in the rock world, it means like the world to me. Like it really does. I feel like I'm, you know, it was like the first year I had my 
record deal in town in Nashville. And I was like, I'm this, I'm the kid, right? Like the, the dude, and you kind of have to win everybody over. And I have that feeling again, but in the best way. And I, and I, I just, I'm, I'm like honored that rock and roll has, has taken me in. It's fucking cool. <laughs> the first time I heard Boots, I'm like, how do we get this guy doing rock music? <laughs> I, like I wanted to recruit, I felt like I was trying to recruit you into rock. Dude, you didn't have to do anything, man. It just kind of <laughs> happened. So let's go back to kind of the beginning for you, because I think you have a very cool story. You, you moved to Nashville so young and you overcame you know you were there for years before things really took off for you so you grew up in mississippi yeah what was your childhood like awesome uh, man i grew up i was from a middle class family um my dad was a chicken farmer my mom worked for uh the the public high school um the city school as a food service manager and uh i played baseball and grew up with a good group of friends and Got in trouble like everybody else, you know, but but I had a very normal, uh, very normal childhood, and I love uh, Philadelphia, Mississippi. It's a really cool small town, and it's a it's a gem of a small town. And people, people, are so proud to be from there. Um, like whether you went on to do other things or not, and so it kind of has that aura around it of like the the pride of being from Philadelphia. And anyway, I just I had a very awesome childhood and, and hometown experience. What's the population size? Sixty nine hundred now. It was seventy nine hundred when I lived there uh, thirteen years ago, um, but now it's it's dropped a little bit, so it's less than seven thousand. That's a real small town. Yeah, it's a, it's pretty small. Were you more of a country music kid or a rock kid growing up? Rock all the way. I, dude, I didn't listen I to country that. until like Eric Church came along. Um, my dad instilled rock and roll in me. In me, um, like by the time I was like not in a car seat, you know what I mean? He he was playing music for me, and then I, like and that was all mostly classic rock and maybe a little bit of the grunge stuff because he was you know he was still younger like at that time, so he was still kind of hearing current music but then once i discovered like mtv i i then sort of started started to discover like my develop my own like taste i guess for rock and roll what were some of the bands that you listened to as a kid um my first cd i ever bought was yourself uh or someone like you the matchbox 20 record that's a good record yeah i loved it uh third eye blind the blue record was a one of my favorites and that was kind of on the soft rock side uh Obviously, like Pearl Jam and STP and stuff was like kind of the stuff, the grunge stuff I was saying that my dad was like introducing me to. But then when I got uh, nine or ten years old, dude, I'm so unapologetic about this, but when Creed came out, I like lost my shit. My dude. When Nickelback came out, or especially the Silver Side, the first record that I heard, I lost my shit. Hybrid, hybrid Theory, I lost my shit. Puddle of Mud, Come Clean. Like all of the stuff that people call butt rock now. That's me was my favorite i like yep. obsessively like rain man just listen to yes. it over and over and over again that's me that was my shit i tell you another one speaking of him was alter bridge yes dude uh one day one day remains is the first name, name of the first record yes. and uh and um blackbird specifically those first two records what and that was all over into like my teenage years when i could drive but, like watch over you and oh, one of my favorite dude, records uh, ever. broken wing broken yep. wings broken wing metalingus literally uh, one of my edges theme song Dude, yeah. that's sick. <laughs> literally, everything you're mentioning is literally, I was growing up listening to the exact same How stuff. old are you? I'm 33. I'm uh, 32. Perfect. So we're, we're the same. Yeah. We're that Breaking Benjamin. Yeah, man. Early 2000s, which is when I listen to this record, when I hear the stuff you're putting out, it gives me kind of that atmospheric, you know, alternative. It's where it comes from, man. 100%, yeah. dude. That's the sound that for me, it's like, you know, 
Load me up on that sound. Dude, <laughs> 24-7. And that's like the age, too, where you're the most vulnerable for influence. Like, your, your, your like creative brain is the most wide open, I feel like, around that, like, early teens and late like childhood years. So all of that stuff I fill my brain with and then it's kind of shut off and that's all, that's what I have to like regurgitate when I write, you know? So what was the first show you ever went to? My first show I ever went to was Aerosmith, uh, the nine lives tour in Birmingham, Alabama. My dad, I it was like 98, 99 or 2000. I can't remember the year, but I was in like second grade and my dad signed me out from school and he took me and it was fucking awesome, bro. They, they, uh, <laughs> They opened with Back in the Saddle, and they did all the all the hits. And then they their encore, they came out, they did one song for the encore, and they did Heartbreaker by Led Zeppelin, and then that was it. Wow. Which was so random and cool, man. It was super cool. Your dad sounds like he rules he's, signing you out of My school. dad is cool, man. He's a cool guy. I'm sure I give him a lot of shit, proud. but he's a cool dude. So you said you moved to Nashville at the age of 19. And I kind of have two questions on this, but it can really be kind of comprised into one, which is... You know, you got to be broke when you move out there. Mm -hmm. How did you make that work? Dude, so um, I moved I moved to Nashville when I was 19. And for the first summer, I, I came with a little bit of money, but not a lot. And uh, for the first summer, I worked at a golf course uh, cleaning golf carts um, here in Nashville. And then I went to school. And uh, my, my parents paid for my school, and they, they helped me a ton. But I will say, when I graduated... And uh, I graduated and I had thought that I had a publishing deal lined up and it fell through. And so I was like broke and I was out of school. Wouldn't, you know, nobody, it wasn't nobody helping me. Like, you know how that is. That was yeah. the rules. Like you're out of college. So figure it out, go work it, go find a job. And uh, I didn't want to get a job because I majored in songwriting. And, and so I, I put together a band and somehow landed a gig in East Tennessee where I opened for Rodney Atkins and I got $2,000 out of them. And I basically survived off of that for like three months <laughs> until, uh, until I could sign, uh, I, I, I finally signed my first publishing deal. And then I was still broke. My draw was terrible and I was broke. And uh, I remember one time my, um, I had a dog and she chewed through my phone charger and it was the only one I had. And, and I had like, seven cents in my bank account and I didn't get paid till like two days later. So I basically like had a dead phone or like had to go to my friend's house and charge my phone or just have a dead phone for like a few days because I, I didn't have enough money to buy a phone charger. <laughs> oh my gosh. That is, that is, you got to really want this to kind of go through that. Too. Yeah, man. You knew when you moved to Nashville that that was what you wanted to do. I, I moved here with that purpose to write. And at the time though, it was to write songs. Like I did that band thing and, I got that opening gig and that was like a brief moment of like six months where I thought I wanted to be an artist, but then I like signed a posting deal and I was like, damn, this is awesome. You should get paid. You know, for me, it was, it was $12,000 a year. I'll just tell you it was $12,000 a year, but all I had to do was write songs. You know what I mean? And, um, that's when I was like, man, I want to be, I just want to be a, a songwriter. And then, you know, years later, the artist thing kind of happened early in your career. You're talking about you're not a draw. You're you're uncertain about your career, and you told this story about a napkin that someone passed you in a tip jar, telling yeah. you to quit when you were just getting started. Now you're the reigning ACM songwriter of the year, <laughs> which is prestigious. What went through your mind that night when you when you got that in the tip? The jar? night oh when I got the the thing, um, man, I wasn't even mad. Like 
it was me and three other buddies, and we were playing a writer's round, which in Nashville, you you basically sit on four stools and with an acoustic guitar, and you go in a row, and you play songs that you've written. Now, the bigger good writer's rounds, they're all hits, you know, and hit writers, and it's a moment for people to see, like, the people behind the song and, and tell the story and all that, but we didn't have any hits, so we were just playing our best songs, and, uh, yeah, somebody somebody wrote, literally quit with an exclamation point and underlined it and put it in uh, our tip jar, but, dude, we were all so hungry and so, like, determined that it didn't even make me or anybody else mad, but, it, I mean, it was only... We were just like, well, fuck that guy. We're, we think we're good. You know what I mean? And so I kept it, dude. I, I literally kept it, and it's it's at my house right now. I still have it to this day. But no, it was it was, dude. It was fuel to the fire. Like I didn't even get butt hurt or anything. I was just like, well, fuck that guy. We're we're gonna we got this, dude. When I watched you tell that story, it was also the way you told it. It was like you were cutting a promo, and I wanted to jump out <laughs> of my seat. You literally see in the video clip, which we're gonna show a clip of that the crowd at by the end of the story is like yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like the, and it was like the ending to a movie yeah was, man was, <laughs> i didn't know that i was going to give that speech that night either and i knew i found out like i guess that night that i had won and i was sitting next to my wife here's a crazy part this is like a sidebar to the story the same night that the quit napkin thing happened over in the corner was this old man named sonny Throck, throgmorton and he was a songwriter, wrote a ton of hits back in the 70s, 70s, maybe 80s. And um, he came up to us and he was like, man, you guys are awesome. Like y'all are from Nashville. Y'all are doing the songwriter thing. You know, like stick with it. We, th I think you guys are good. And I, so I met him that night and I thought it was super cool to meet Sonny Throckmorton at, you know, at the Floribama, some random, not random, it's a pretty popular bar. But anyway, long story short, I knew I was winning that award that night, but I did not know that Sonny Throgmorton was being honored that night as like the American poet. And they didn't put that part in the, they didn't add, they, they edited my speech and they didn't put that part. But the second that I realized he was going to win that award that night, I was like, I have to tell that story now. Cause it was the same night that all of that happened. It was like totally, totally like universe coming together kind of thing. It was super cool. Yeah. That was powerful. What was the first big moment in your career where you felt like you were gaining momentum? Oh, um, like at, in my artist career? Because sure. I have a, okay. Or songwriting. I mean, when you're just starting to do this job in this industry. Okay. Well, I have two. I have a songwriter one and, a, and an artist one. Right. But the songwriter one, um, to be honest, was... Uh, Florida Georgia Line, I, I went out, they, they had me, they used to bring all these young writers out, like nobodies out to kind of get a feel for who the up-and-comers were. They were really smart about that. And uh, I was one of the nobodies that they had out uh, to, on the road to write with them. And we wrote, didn't really get any great songs, and then I didn't hear from them. But they, they ended up having me back out like six months later. And uh, I had still had no hits. I had, I had nothing really to my name. And um, they... Uh, I finally landed a couple of good songs with him, and I remember Tyler calling me, and he basically he was like, man, do you want to just come out with us for the rest of this year and help us write our next record? And that was like the first really moment where I was like, oh, man, I think I'm going to be okay. Like, I think, you know what I mean? It was it was a huge moment. Um, as an artist, there is a, a Live Nation festival that actually does not exist anymore, or for the time being, called Lake Shake. And uh, it was the summer of 2019. I... I to sign my record deal in 2018, but I toured with Morgan Wallen 
Uh, I'd only done opening gigs. I'd never like played any sort of headliner show or anything like that. And we were playing the tent, the small tent stage at Lake Shake that probably held like three or four thousand people. Yeah. Um, I, I won't say small, but it was like this. You know, there was the giant stage it's and like then the, the tent feature stage. tent. We exactly. got a lot of festivals. So. so this one's like next from Nashville stage. Yes, exactly. And um, dude, we got up there, and I just I had no gauge of who my fans were because I'd only done opening slots and I only had two, only had ten songs out. Um, and that tent was completely full of people. It's where the hearty chant originated. Um, and they knew every word and it was just uh, my first moment as an artist where I, I was like, all right, we have, we officially have fans and like people know the music. And, and that was the first bit of real momentum that I, that I felt was at that festival. What's the best advice you've received thus far in your career? Hmm. That is a great question. I would say, I would say the biggest piece of advice, and I don't even know who gave me this, um, but I'm sure a few people have, but it's like just to be nice and be like respectful and respect people. And, and, um, cause that just takes you so far, man. If, if I like met a kid that I didn't think was very good, but he was like really nice and a great hang, I would work with that person again over a kid that was really good. That was a shithead. So that's that that takes you so far in this town. It's amazing you say that because when I was a kid, it it it, uh, it sends chills down my spine. But Conan O'Brien is a late night talk show host. Mm -hmm. who, he had a very funny late night show, and he signed off the show, reflecting on his career, and it had a really big impact on me. And he said to anybody watching this show, he was like, "If you work hard and you be nice to people, good things will happen in your life." And I really do believe that's true. Yeah, you know, um, absolutely. And I, I found that to be karma is real, dude. Yeah, that I mean, you can call it what you want, but that that shit is one hundred percent real. Yes, I swear it is. Yeah. What was the worst advice you ever received? Um, I I, I won't mention his name because there's a chance he might see this. Sure. And if you do, I'm sorry. But the worst advice I ever received, I was playing. It was a man that I know um, from my hometown. And he, I came in, uh, he, anyway, I was in a situation where I played him a few songs and he had a little bit of Nashville experience. And he said, the best advice I can give you is no matter what, have a backup plan. And that just like pissed me off so bad. And I was like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. But I was like, fuck that dude. Mm -hmm. You had a backup plan and that's why you failed. Like, I tell people all the time, like you should, if you want to do it, you should blindly move to Nashville and never have a backup plan because that ensues a little bit of you thinking that it's not going to work out. And he, he told me that like three times that morning and I, I hated that. And that was the worst advice I think you can give somebody. And, and, uh, because it only, it only sets you up for failure. I think that's, I've heard a lot of people say that. I think I've heard Jelly Roll say that as well. He said that to us in wow. one of the conversations we had. So you write Up Down with Morgan Wallen. It goes to number one, helping launch the career of who is now going to be one of the biggest country singers in history, I mm -hmm. think it's fair to say at this point. Yeah. What was your life like at that point when that, that song took off for you? When it went number one? Yeah. It was the best day of my life, man. And, and like anything from five to one, if you're a songwriter, it pays the same, but it wasn't... Like, I, I was already celebrating that I, my life was going to change because I was going to not be broke for the first time. 
but just to to nail down a number one it was dude it was the best day of my life and i'll never forget i was on the road riding it was actually lake shake a year to the day before i played when i before i had signed my record right. deal and i was out with florida georgia lion and i was riding with jordan schmidt and russell dickerson and uh I was useless because I was so excited that I had a number one that I was like, I don't, I don't want to fucking write a song today, dude. I just want to party. <laughs> but man, it was, it meant everything, dude. It was, it was like security for like, you know, getting into better rooms in Nashville and uh, obviously like not being, not maybe having to worry about being month to month. And also um, it was Morgan's first number one as an artist and my first yeah. number one as a, as a writer. And so it was just really special. And he was a Big Loud artist, and I had become very affiliate, affiliated with Big Loud and was talking about signing a record deal with him, and it all was just very euphoric because I could feel like, I felt like it was the cornerstone, like, beginning of, like, you know, my, the start of my career, like, my, you know what I mean, as a professional or whatever. So you continue working, and you're gaining steam, obviously, from that. You end up writing, and we were just listening to this the other day, and we were talking about, man, how hard the lyrics go, and... God's Country with Blake Shelton. Oh, yeah. How was that? Dude, that was the first song I wrote in 2019. Yeah. Um, and I'll tell you a funny story. So I just got back, and I actually just got back. I take like a, I guess you'd call it a sabbatical. Every year I go back to my hometown in Mississippi, and I deer hunt for as long as I can, in Jan as long as they'll give me off in January. <laughs> and uh, in this case, it was two weeks. And uh and I'd just gotten back from that, 2019, uh, the beginning of 2019, and I I hunt some family land that we've owned for like nearly 80 years. Like my family, it's not a lot, it's a few hundred acres, but it's we've deer hunted on it for, you know, 80 years, and, and I'm it's, we're really proud of it. And so I wrote down God's Country, because that's kind of what I think of when I, I go out there. And um, we wrote that song on a Thursday, and... Blake Shelton recorded it the following Tuesday, and it was on the radio like two weeks later. What and a that, turnaround. Dude, that never happens in Nashville. Like occasionally, but like once every five years, something like that happens. But it was the coolest. And like Scott, the producer, and even Blake would text me and be like, this is going to be one of the biggest songs of my career, his career. And I was just like, <laughs> what is going on right now? And, uh, man, that song, I, I had uh, Up, Down, and Simple. I wrote Simple with FGL. That was my second number one. But God's Country, like, that, like, really started, that that song changed my life. It changed, that song had a huge uh, part of my me growing momentum as an artist uh, because we performed it live and just the hype and the word got out that, you know, that I wrote the song and, and kind of took it in as one of my, as my own song in a way. And, um it just, it, it, it changed everything for me, dude. It, it really, really did. So, and this is, this is very funny because I wrote this question before you said it early in the interview. You said, you know, you drop a rock and it foreshadows where we are today. Yeah. That's the word I use. Foreshadow? Yeah, foreshadowing. Nice. I, a rock. I'm like, I knew this is the direction that, and, and I know at the time that really wasn't your intention, but when you listen to that, I'm like, in many ways, this is also a rock record. Yeah. And so... Is this the direction that you kind of always saw things going where you're this hybrid of a massive country star and you're getting into rock, you're surely going to be massive there too. Is that kind of the direction you always saw things going? Yeah. The first song that I ever cut, the, the song that like that we I 
somewhat based my record deal around was four by four. Um, even over, Rednecker ended up being my first single, but four by four, and that kind of that was like foreshadowing on its own because it was like we. I knew it just took a little time to figure out my sound, and I think that you know a lot of people are like that. And people chat. Look at like Billie Eilish. She, she's. It took her a few records to dial in her thing, and and um, uh. But yeah, I always knew that I wanted to do, you know, the heavier thing. But the struggle that I had was like the songwriter ish side of me that wanted to do stuff like a rock or like sign sober you do y'all know that song yeah. it's like the ballad mm -hmm. um so there was a little bit of apprehension with like how far do we lean into it because if people get used to that and then i, I drop something soft like is that going to fall flat and um so it, you know it was kind of uh gradual but yeah i mean from the very beginning i kind of i kind of knew that that was the direction i wanted to take with yeah. everything and, and it's obviously worked very well for you, and this new album will solidify that. So the next year, really a few months later, Morgan Wallen releases Dangerous, the double album. Uh -huh. It's now one of the biggest country albums of all time. Yeah. I don't know what the numbers are. It's, I mean, it's still in the top 10 two years later. Crazy. How, know, many, how, many, how many albums sold? Is it Diamond? Yeah. 10 million? It's got to be Diamond. Yeah. Yeah, it's already Diamond. So, like, you've got... He's, he's going to Google. Yeah, it's going. It, that's wild. So, how many songs did you write on that album? Can you name the songs you wrote? I can try. Um, yeah. Living the dream. Uh, Beer don't. Um, something country. Sand in my boots. Um, I'm from a small town. <laughs> I can name the song. Still goes. Still going down. Still going in down. The country. Um, more than my hometown, this bar. I think that's, I think that's all. Dude, what, what, how has that album affected your life? Man, <laughs> it's done very well. I mean, um, I, you know, it's crazy. And some, I'm still seeing residual effects, I think, maybe financially, but also just that stuff is still, you know. Those are brilliant song sand in my boots dude we wrote that right across the road right over there i want to say too did you write tennessee fan i did bro yeah i did write tennessee fan we've what been we've been wearing that song out the well uh you mean the tennessee fan song yeah. it was mississippi first no sand in my out. boots was mississippi first okay, sand in my boots something was, yeah. something about the way she kissed me tells me she loves miss she loved mississippi ah. uh because i wrote it we just wrote it like I guess from my perspective at the time, and it was uh, a town outside of Knoxville hidden by some tall pine, or town outside of Jackson hidden by some tall pine trees, and it wasn't do uh, Knoxville and Dogwood. You're a wordsmith. <laughs> That's so great. How do you balance? You're writing your own hit songs, you're touring in support of your own hit songs, and you're writing hit songs for other people. What's your schedule like? <laughs> Probably nuts. It's pretty nuts. But I treat it, I treat that like I have two jobs, and uh, but I'd go crazy if I didn't. Like, I don't know how some of these artists that don't necessarily write all the time, like Kenny and Luke Bryan. I mean, he writes some, but he's not like you know grinding every day. I would go crazy if I got off the road and like didn't have anything to do. Um, but yeah, man. I mean, we tour. We're usually gone Thursday, Friday, Saturday, back Sunday, 
and I usually take Mondays off, but I'm I'm trying to write Tuesday, Wednesday, and sometimes Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday every week um, if I can, and I just treat it like I have two jobs, honestly, and it's just kind of a part of the routine. So I, I I feel like I'm used to it. I know it can it's grindy sometimes, but uh, I love it, and it feels like when I get back to town, I have a purpose when I'm home, and I'm not just going stir crazy or like fucking off and playing golf, which I love to do <laughs> play golf and fish and do all that stuff but it's it's nice to come back and also feel like i have a purpose in town too who's the best uh country artist at golf dude surprisingly colt ford is really really good colt Shout ford's a scratch ford. golfer jake owen's really good uh do you know jameson rogers jameson jameson's a stick dude yeah. um shout out jameson rogers uh and then uh who i've never played with him but her kit moore's a pretty good golfer um, Darius is pretty good. There's a, there's a surprising, surprisingly, uh, decent sized group of good golf. I think Cole Swindell's pretty good. So it seems like golf is a big deal out here. Yeah. A lot of people love it, man. So the Mockingbird and the Crow, when did you start to work on this album? Jack started, dude, let me look up the date. Yeah. I'm just curious. Cause that was, that was definitely, Jack was so long ago that I, I almost thought about doing it as a deluxe, uh, deluxe for um, uh, a rock. That's how long ago it was. Um, I have Jack in so many fucking songs that I don't even... Okay. February 9th, 2021. So almost two years ago. Wow. Um, and that was the first song that I wrote for it. So, uh, yeah. It's been it's been two years in the making, and and it was just sort of a gradual like writing, and then cutting a few, and then writing, and like you know recording a few, and writing and recording a few, like just a gradual process. It took about a year and a half. The record's really been done since May, I think, of of twenty twenty two, and we just just couldn't really find a great time to to put it out. But yeah, a year and a half uh, of of working on it. But yeah, started at the beginning of twenty one. So, Wait in the Truck has become a massive hit. Lanny Wilson, she's a massive star. You're both just blowing up. How did that song come together? I wrote that song with um, Hunter Phelps and Jordan Schmidt. Um, also in 2021, I believe. Um, yeah, shortly after Jack, actually, because uh, I think it was like March 24th, because we celebrated my... My wife's birthday uh, a couple days after I, I got that song back, but um, Hunter and I had that idea, and at first we kind of to want to write it like douchey, like I heard you got roughed up, you know, at a bar, and like come with me and I'm gonna go kick this dude's ass, you know, and um, man, it was like it sounds so cliche and stupid, but it was like a rainy day, and, and the three of us had nothing to do that day, and we got in the room. And we talked about that idea and we all liked it, but we were like, man, it could be better than just like, you know, like going and kicking a dude's ass. And we talked about how much we love Old Red and uh, I don't, there's so many great story songs. And so we just sat down and, and said, man, let's just try to, to write like a crazy story song. And it, and it, man, that, that was the most like, again, this sounds super cheesy, but like otherworldly, like spiritual supernatural day because i don't remember anything about writing that song everybody was so like on fire and everybody had awesome lines that day that we just like hammered through it and just we like looked down and we were like holy shit this song is done i mean it, it truly everybody was on their a game that day and uh it just 
it, that one just sort of came out. I mean, it really did. I don't remember anything about whose line was who or whatever. It just, when you're writing a really, really great song and you know it, there's something really cool that happens in the room where, like, it gets real serious. But not, like, in a pressure way, but just like, oh, fuck, we got something really yeah. good here. And uh, and then time just, like, goes away, man. And you just get so immersed in that lyric that you just forget kind of the details of, of the day. But, uh, man, it was a special, special day. You initially released Sold Out, comes out on Instagram, a video. It's right here? Yeah. Standing right here? Right here. And you're screaming on the track, very different from what country fans are used to hearing. The, by the way, the vi even the video that was edited, I guess Tanner Gallagher does this. I'm, is, is that your videographer? What was the sold out video? Sorry, I was skipping. The live video? Oh, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the wall-to-wall -wall video thing. Yeah, I'm such a fan of his garden. editing. Yeah, dude, Tanner, Tanner did that. Tanner's yeah, awesome. Tanner, he's Tanner he's does, one of the best Tanner in the does business. Very good. So were you concerned that maybe, you know, there'd be some pushback from, like, country fans that you're not meeting their expectation? Not that it's a fear, but... Yeah, I mean, like, pushback's a good way to put it. Yeah. I was definitely, like, the moms and the churchgoers that are over 40 years old are sure. going to fucking hate this. And sure. they did. Some of them did. You know what I mean? This ain't country music, but I was like, well, it's kind of not. You know what I mean? Maybe that's not what we're going for. Yeah. Um, but then they still got weight in the truck. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's kind of like, the... Yeah. You're and being that's very how I generous. To always be, you know. Um, I think that's the perfect way to do it, man. Like, yeah. ev just do whatever you want, and you're so good at both. And it's, I think it really does help people. You know, like everybody says, well, if you don't like it, don't listen to it. But if you have something else to give them, then it, you can actually say, like, if you don't like it, don't listen to that. Listen to this instead. And I feel like you kind of get the best of both worlds a little bit. There's the video of you playing sold out live, and it's like thousands of people doing a champagne shower oh, yeah. in the crowd. I think that was a country concert <laughs> in Ohio. Was it outside during yes. the day? Country concert. Shout out Fort Laramie. That place fucking... Boy, that crowd was they, something else. That was, a, that was a moment. That was a huge... When we went into it and we saw, like, literally, you're right, like, thousands of beers, we were all like, dude, that was fucking cool. I was pissed I wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> so now, sold out is the theme for the Royal Rumble. Yeah. And you recently interfered in a match on Monday Night Raw. Yeah. What was that like? It was awesome. Uh, <laughs> I was more nervous about that than probably pretty much anything I've ever done. Um, I got a text. So Neil Lowy is um, the head of entertainment for the WWE, and he lives in Nashville, and he and I have gotten to be really good buddies. He's a really great guy. And so he's, he's put me on a lot of uh, – gotten me, you know – in with a lot of the WWE things and um, and anyway he, he texted Tracker and said you think Hardy would want to be in a skit you know or a bit uh, on TV and, and so Tracker asked me and I was like yeah sure what do I got to do and he was like I think you're going to fucking hit somebody with a guitar hell yeah and I was like I'm, I'm in and we do we showed up we went to you know the thing is wrestling is not fake wrestling is real yes. it's rehearsed that guitar was fucking real yes and it was, I, I can assure you it was real. So we went through it, you know, and, and, and the dude was like, hit me as hard as you can. The harder you hit me, the less it's going to hurt. And anyway, it just, it worked out perfect. It broke right on his back, man. Wow. Yeah, that was, I saw that and I said, man, we're, we're bringing the Attitude Era back. I have, um, I have theories about this Royal Rumble that it's also going to be very big. I, 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 there's a lot of rumors. This is, I don't know anybody at WWE, but the rumor is you look at a guy like Stone Cold Steve Austin, yep. 
who's training and is in ring shape. And he showed up at Mania last year. Oh, and shit. I'm just saying, you're playing, you're performing at Royal Rumble, and this is probably going to be a pretty historic Royal Rumble that you're at. Damn, I, that's cool. All right, so who were some of your favorite wrestlers growing up? Sting, um, Psychosis. Oh, you're you're legit. Oh yeah, I mean, you're a I was, legit fan. Dude. I was in it for a minute. Um, dude, Kane. Uh, Goldberg. I was a big Goldberg guy. Oh, yeah. I was kind of a, even a hipster when I was a kid. Like, everybody liked Stone Cold, so I, I didn't like Stone Cold as much as everybody else, but uh, still cool. Um, I, Sting was my favorite one. I know he's really popular, but Sting was, I love the face mat, the face paint and all that stuff. I thought he was cool. So after the Royal Rumble, you're doing, this is, this is a big deal for rock. You're playing at two historic rock venues in one night at the Troubadour and at the Roxy in Los Angeles. Yeah. First of all, how the hell do you play two shows in one night? Dude, we're, we're going to do it, man. I think we have our two different uh, setups. Like, So when we get to the rock, I could be wrong about this. Are they moving all their gear over? No, we have two sets of gear. Okay, two sets of gear. That's dope. And so the second we finish, we're hopping in a car and going over, and, and the guitar players just show up with their... Um, just the guitars they're going to use, and Plug that's in. pretty much it. But yeah, it'll be it'll be waiting for us when we get to the Roxy. So you covered Blurry by Puddle of Mud a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. which, I mean, I loved it. And you did shows recently with the band. So what was that experience like, playing with Puddle of Mud? Dude, it was awesome. Um, I uh, I was, like, nervous because I never met them or any of, any of those guys, especially Wes. And uh, I was such a big fan. Yes. And met super nice, um, just right before they went on stage, and I I went I watched side stage and they I watched their entire set, dude, yeah, and dude. sang every word. They opened with um, Psycho, and uh, anyway, it was dude, it was awesome, and they were super nice. We didn't get to hang a whole lot, um, but uh, every every interaction I had with him or any of those guys was super nice, and yeah. they they stayed. And uh, after they played and watched our whole set, I could see them side stage. And uh, anyway, so it was it was a really great experience. For me. Uh, what was there? What did they think about the cover? Did it, was there any discussion about that? I don't even know if we talked about it. I'm sure he loved it. That's great. I mean, I guess if he didn't, if he hated it, he probably would have told me. So I, I guess I got the, no, the he seal liked of it. approval. Yeah, shout out to Wes. Yeah. So. I thought this was so cool. You came out during a Bill Murray performance. Yeah. And you were screaming, and the crowd was hyped. Uh, what was that like, man? Um, dude, that was awesome. So that I, I became a fan of Bill Murray a few years ago, and I went to follow them on Instagram, and, and uh, I noticed that the Bill Murray account had, was already following me, and I was like, oh, my God, this is cool. And then I went to send them a message to be like, hey, I'm a huge fan. And they had sent me a message. And so I was like, this is fucking awesome. And so John, Johnny and I from, you know, uh, Johnny Frank uh, struck up a relationship. And um, he came to a couple shows. They hung out. I gave his buddy a tattoo one night after our show. And um, anyway, he and I remained in touch and talk all the time. And so he asked me, he was like, would you want to do a feature on my next record? And I was like, sure. But it was, it was around like album release time. And I told him, and this is just part of it, but I was no, like, man, yeah. I can't, I can't have my name on it, but I would love to still do it. Yeah. And, um, so I did it, but nobody, you know, he never revealed who it was. And so when they came to Nashville, that was like the moment to 
you know, and I think a lot of people had figured it out, but like reveal who it was or whatever. But dude, it was sick. I mean, I've never been on stage at a, a you wouldn't even call that metal, but like it is, it's treated like a metal yeah. show. And I've never, I've, I've been to a bunch, but I've never like been on the stage and seen the pit open up and do all that shit. And it was cool, man. It was like you were a natural, dude. Moments. You were a natural up there. I mean, you obviously have, have performed so many times, but you like fit right into the metal and your screaming vocals sounded so great. Thank you, man. Yeah, dude. Very I'm natural. I'm working on them. Were you going to like Warp Tour and Ozfest when you were a kid growing up? No, I never did. Man, being from Philadelphia, like that, that was just it was hard to to get to anywhere that they would have been. Truly out there. I mean, we are. Which three hours is not that far, but we're three hours from Birmingham, we're three hours from Memphis, and we're three hours from New Orleans. But we're right in the middle of all of them. And uh, dude, no, we would go to uh, Columbus, Mississippi, had a venue that every now and then would get a show. Like I saw the Chariot there. Uh, and then Jackson, Mississippi had a couple venues that they, um, like I saw Gideon there and, uh, do you remember my children, my bride, they were like an old, yeah. uh, um, and then I came to, but I came to a bunch when I moved to Nashville, especially my first like two years here, they had screamed the prayer at that. Gideon uh, was great too, man. Yeah. They're still out. They're, they, Daniel, I know they're like split, but I think they're split between Mississippi and Alabama. Mm. Uh, but I think I think they're mostly Alabama, but they were heavy. Uh, yeah, they were super cool. I love yeah. Gideon. Yeah, but I I, Gideon. I went to like a few like Thrash and Burn. I saw Born of Osiris headline Thrash and Burn back in the day, and uh, Scream the Prayer was another big festival. So another great band. I'd Born been to a bunch. Osiris. People yeah. were very pumped in the comments of the video. Oh, the shirt playing Kill Shit Till I Die, and it's like it's really cool to see this guy that is massive in country that's r exposing. Millions of people to uh, a band like Born of Osiris yeah. has been working their asses off their whole career. They've been at it for years, like yes. 10, 15 years. And they've got a great body of work, and it's just, you know, yep. very heavy. So, you know, talking about you and, and this movement in rock, and there are three people that come to mind, really four, and we talked about that as well, uh, that are uniquely positioned to do really good things in rock. It's obviously you, Jelly Roll, Brantley Gilbert, and I'd say Co Wetzel as well. We, yeah. we talked about that. Um, you know, how did you meet uh, Jelly Roll and Brantley Gilbert and Co? How did you meet these guys? Okay, Jelly. The first time I met Jelly, I played golf with him. Um, we had talked a little bit on Instagram and stuff, just like through the last few years. But I just met him sort of. Ernest was like, you want to go play golf with me and Jelly today and, and or whenever? And I said, yeah. And so we, we just played a round of golf together um, and then struck up a friendship after that. Brantley and I wrote together at the end of 2020, um, and that's where we met. Totally hit it off. Like, Brantley's they, – they, all three of those dudes are awesome, but Brantley, Brantley's fucking awesome, dude. He, he's, he's a great dude, and he's, he's – already done a lot for me with like cutting a lot of my songs and he had me on a song and um anyway we just we wrote a few times and then we were like buddies ever since ever since uh and co i uh the first time i met again we had kind of been t well i got his number through our management uh because they're they're buddies with his management and we just started texting and talking about working together in some capacity and then we got put on was it 2021 we got put on a um, acoustic tour of Texas together, wow. co-headlining, just sitting on stools and playing. It was fucking crazy, bro. Well, I bet. And, <laughs> oh, but on and off the stage. Yeah. And um, 
and we just got to know his his camp, and they're they're fucking awesome people, man. And and then since then we've played, we've we've been fortunate to play a couple shows together. But but our my camp and and his camp are really really tight. Coast crew, they're they're uh, man, they're like an intimidating group of dudes, but they are the nicest dudes you'll ever meet, uh, especially if they like you and and they're respectful and just super 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 nice guys. And uh, so anyway, we we really have gelled with with their crew a ton. And I'm, dude, I'm a big Coetzel fan like he he opened for us at rock the south and i like we were right after him and like i saw like the first five songs i was like fuck i gotta get ready and i was walking off the stage and then he started playing like drunk driving and i like would run back up there and be like <laughs> yeah 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 and that happened twice before i had to like 10 minutes before we went on stage i had to go throw like my show clothes on but i'm a big i'm, I'm a big fan of of co like i love his music and love what he's doing and he, I, I feel like he and I are very similar, but he's kind of doing it like the Texas way, right? You know, and I'm, I'm having a little bit more of a Nashville lyric on top of my stuff, but I'm a big fan of his his music. And so, speaking of Ernest, who is another incredibly talented songwriter and has a very bright future in country music, Jelly Roll was recently on the Bustin' with the Boys podcast, and this is something that he said. I wanted to kind of get your take on it, your reaction. He said, Ernest, Hardy, and Morgan have created a sense of actual, genuine friendship in the music business that hasn't been seen since how Waylon and Willie were with each other. You guys really seem to kind of root for each other and sincerely lift each other up. Yeah, we talk every day. I talk to Ern every day. I talk to Morgan every day. If not every day, five times a week. Um, no competition, just literally rooting for nah. your boys to win. Yeah, because we're all, be. like, if we all win... If if Earn wins, I win, and if yes. I win, Morgan wins, and, and every all that. So like, um, we all just came. We all had nothing at the same time, and then had something at the same time. And that, there's just something cool about like coming up together. And obviously, Morgan has just a, but not we don't. There's no jealous. No, nothing like that, bro. It's all just like, we all just kind of can't believe it's all happening to us. You know what I mean? I think it sets a good example though for a lot of people that yeah. you've got these three dudes that without question are just homies that want each other to win. Yeah. And and I, I just was really I, I think I thought that was a great observation by Jelly Roll who It is, dude. He nerds he, he nerds out about us, dude. I he's, think it's cool. He's one of the most charismatic uh people I've ever met. He is very much he's been very good to us and just a just a a, a very, very cool guy and also mm -hmm. very funny. Mm-hmm. So, his one-liners are fucking hilarious, dude, bro. He has got, all he's kinds got all of all these sayings and all he these does, like... He does, man. <laughs> it's awesome. He does, man. An album like The Mockingbird and the Crow, how long does it take to produce an album like that in the studio? To produce? Um, we would cut... We would have... Uh, let's see. It would be 10, 10 to 5, right? So that would be with an hour for lunch... Like a six-hour day, I guess, or something, something like that. I can't remember the box, but we would usually cut two a day. Um, and so, since there's seventeen, uh, you yeah, do the math. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so it would usually be two a day, sometimes three, but usually we would cut with the band two a day, and and then Joey, uh, Joey just does whatever he does, his magic that he does. Joey is a champ. Yeah, and then and then I would come in and sing, but I mean. And it, we usually, we would try to knock out, we, I was in a hurry to finish, I was not in a hurry, but I, we were in a hurry to finish the record, so I was coming in and doing like three or four songs a day, uh, trying to finish it, and um, so I would say, I mean, 
the production, like from the time, I mean, I would say like a year of, of, but, but Joey could do it in like, he could do it in two months. He's he next level. Yeah. I mean, really the, the rock albums that he's done, that's another thing where this Amazing. makes sense is you have Joey Moy, who has done some of the best rock albums of the last 30 years. I mean, his yep. discography. So I just want to kind of talk about some of these songs. You know, the first half of this album is country. You got track two. It's a song called Red featuring Morgan Wallen. What can you tell us about that song? Man, it's just, a, it's like a down the gut, like um, mid-tempo, like small town kind of, you know, anthem, I guess you could call it. And it just uses the word red as a device to explain, you know, small town life. But it's, dude, I love the just mid-tempo songs about like, small towns it's like my jam dude um and it's just it's just one of those man i love i love the song and i love how we we um incorporated red through so like intertwined it through so much you know stuff through the through the uh that song here lies country music love that song it's like a pivotal moment on the album what's the meaning behind that song if you you know there's nothing i think a lot of people thought it was me like leaving country music and uh I mean, the bridge even says, like, you woke up and it was all a dream, you right. know? But, um, no, I, I we wrote that song in Texas on a writing retreat, and uh, it really, man, it truly, it, we put it we put it at the, the end of the, the Mockingbird because it's it's a symbol of, like, the, all right, the country, country music is done, and now right. we're moving on to the rock thing. But, um, really, it's just, we just wrote it, at, 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 like, to basically say, like, could you imagine a world where all the things that you talk about in country songs went away and how sad that would be and yes. how you wouldn't have anything to talk about. And that's that's really all we were really trying to get at with that yeah, song. Yeah, it would be crazy for anyone to think, which I know this was never a thing for you. I mean, hey, I'm um, I'm win basically winning the Super Bowl in country music and I'm going to get out of it now. Like, yeah, it make no any way, sense. man. Yeah. I, I would never. There's no I'd question never about you leaving leave. country. You're doing both. Yeah, exactly. That's what's exactly. dope about this. That's what's so positive about this. So The Mockingbird and the Crow... Such an epic song where this is a pivotal moment in the record, and you're kind of going from country to rock. How? Tell us about how that song came together, dude. Did you know that was the last song we wrote for the record? No. Um, I didn't. I didn't really. We played played around with a couple album titles, but I knew I was going to do the half and half thing. But I didn't. We had not found like an album title really, or like a concept, and. Um, I I was on the Cumberland River one day. I, uh, I have a little John boat, and I ride up and down the river and fish and just do redneck shit with my friends. And, I love it. And um, I, I, you guys have probably seen this before, but a lot of times in life you'll see a crow flying through the sky, and there's a mockingbird that's hanging with it and kind of like pecking at it and stuff. And I've seen that a lot growing up, and I saw that when I was out on the river, and so I wrote, I was like, man, the mockingbird and the crow, that sounds like a And this was like almost done with my record. And I like wrote that down, The Mockingbird and the Crow, and it never registered with me that that would like perfectly describe or encapsulate the idea of this record. And uh, I was I had Jordan Schmidt and Brett Tyler out with me. They're two songwriters. Um, and I play, was playing them some of my record because it was done. I had eight songs and eight songs. And I played them Jack and another one of the Kill Shit Till I Die and they were like, dude, we have to we have to write a rock song for the record. And I was like, the record's done. And um, they were like, yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> sure enough, the next morning I woke up, like 10 a.m., walk in the front lounge, and Jordan and Brett are in there writing riffs for a rock song. And I, and I was like, dude, what are y'all doing? 
And they, anyway, they were like, come on, like, please, we just want to write. And so I started scrolling through my ideas, and that's when I saw The Mockingbird and the Crow, and I was like, fuck, that, that kind of works. And so I threw the idea out, and I was like, what if we did write one more song for the record called The Mockingbird and the Crow? And, you know, we talked the, through the whole thing of the struggle between the country and the this and the that, and we just kind of went for it, man, and we wrote The Crow first. Um, the Crow was the first part that we wrote, and then we went back and wrote The Mockingbird and then put them together, and that became sort of what it became. That outro on that song is so heavy. Where you go back to the beginning, yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very cool. Super intentional. Yeah, it was... So this is a song, again, when you dropped Sold Out, dude, that was probably the song of the year for me. And the hardest opening line, gold records on the sheetrock. <laughs> Dude, that was so tough, man. I, I, I when I first heard that, I, we were just cool. we laugh about that all the time. Like, you know that that really kind of represents you well. Um, was this where where was this written? How did this song come together? We wrote that at uh, David guitar, uh, guitar, David Garcia's studio in Berry Hill. He's moved to a different place uh, now, but um, sold out. I just, it was a Monday, I had just gotten off the road from like a 17-day run. Excuse me, I was exhausted, my voice was fucking gone, but I had Hunter and David, Hunter Phelps and David Garcia, two guys that I write with a ton, and it was like, they're like an easy ride, you know what I mean? There was a pressure, uh, anyway, long story short, David knew that I was trying to lean into the rock thing a little bit more, he produced Jack, or he, he, he did the Jack demo and that was prior to sold out. So he knew what direction I was kind of going for. So he played me a few beats or, or starts that he had. And the, the, the intro to sold out was one of them without the hearty chant, obviously. And, um, and I was like, that's actually pretty sick. And I scrolled through my ideas and I had an idea called selling out. And I explained it, how it was like, you know, like, you know, like selling out, like selling your soul, kind of that, you know, selling out, like you've changed, but also selling out, and Hunter Hunter was the one that was like, no, what if it was like, it's like sold out, but you haven't sold, and like that, and he, so Hunter really brought that idea to life, and then, and and we just decided to make it like personal, you know, to me, and and, uh, and my voice, I remember when we, we finished the song, and I got in the studio to sing it with David, the demo that day, and when I got to that part, the scream part, I did it, but my voice was so gone that the scream actually worked because it was like the raspiest that it had ever been. And that's kind of thus the scream was born right there. And it sounded great. From then on, I kind of learned how to how to scream a little bit better. You know? Yeah, that showed with when you came out with Bill Murray. Yeah. So Jack, it's another great song. My my takeaway from that song is it's kind of like it speaks a little bit to maybe people relying on alcohol to boost their creativity, maybe boost their confidence sometimes. Yep. And Everybody's dealt with that maybe personally, whether you're an entertainer or not. Is this something that kind of came to mind when you wrote the song? Yeah, um, I, I just wanted to write a song that kind of just could sh show you how manipulative, and I drink, I mean, yeah, same. Um, but uh, how manipulative and how, how tight of a grip, you know, alcohol can have on people that, that struggle with it. And uh, I've had alcoholics in my uh, family. And um, I just wanted to write a song to kind of pay homage to the people that had to deal with all that shit, you know what I mean? And, and uh, to the people that 
that dealt with people that struggled um, with the voices in their head telling them to, you know, to keep drinking and that, that type of thing and just do it from the perspective of Jack as if he were the devil or, you know, something that, that had a tight grip on somebody. Right. So, truck bed. Man, I love truck bed. It's so catchy. It's got pop sensibilities. Yeah. And by the end, you're going to do a circle pit. Yeah. <laughs> that was a very creative and kind of off the wall. You don't really hear anything like it. I'm like, oh, this is kind of a pop leading mm -hmm. track. And then at the end, I'm like punching holes in the wall and stuff. Yeah. It, was, it was incredible. How did that song come together? Um, that I wrote that with uh, Ashley Gorley, Hunter Phelps, and Ben Johnson. Same group of people that I wrote Give Heaven Some Hell with. Um, and Ben is a, he can write lyrics and stuff too, but he's a producer writer. So he's the guy at the computer, you know? Yeah. And, um, he had, he had that, that riff. And he had like, he, he does a lot of pop stuff. So he had that riff with like the 808 beat over it. And, um, I threw that idea out and I just started singing, uh, I woke up on the wrong side of the truck. And I mean, it just, we just started writing it and, and. I love writing songs. Like, there's two on this record. There was two on the last record. Boots and Ain't a Bad Day were both, like, about pissing your girlfriend off pretty much. And, I love uh, Ain't a Bad Day. And 30 All Six on this one and, and Truck Bad. I don't know. There's a, I don't even piss Callie off that much. I just, they're, they're fun to write. And uh, so it, it is, it's like a Boots 2.0, man. Except, you know, you wake up with your boots on this time kind of deal. But it's just a fun song that's fun to play live. And we just wanted to kind of send it at the end and go for, like, a weird, like, uh, West Borland-ish kind of. Yeah you know, some sort of riff like that at the end. And, and, and uh, yeah, it's really fun live. It's it, really great live. I can't wait to see it. I'm going to see it soon. So Radio Song features a very f uh, familiar and well-liked name in rock music, Jeremy McKinnon of A Day to Remember. Also, he's a great songwriter. Um, yeah. How did that song come together? How did you guys get linked up? Instagram. All of the people that I'm, like, <laughs> friends with now. Same deal, though, man. I... I uh, I can't remember. I think he reached out first and just said, "Like, man, we're all we're all fans of you over here." And I was a huge A Day to Remember fan in high school. They're so great. For those who have heart, was like my shit, dude. Same. Um, plot to bomb the panhandle, like all the old dude, stuff. Yeah. And um, so anyway, so I've already followed them and kept up with them through the years. And uh, he and I just started chatting and and darian is a guy that works for me i call him scary darian because he's got tattoos and and, like <laughs> hair and face piercings and stuff and um he he knew that jeremy and i have been talking because he's a big metal guy and um when i wrote radio song uh i got the demo back and i was playing it for my band guys and darian was like bro you should get you should get jeremy to do that with you and i was like that's actually a really good idea so I sent it to Jeremy, and Jeremy was like, I'm in. Can I go in and rewrite the breakdown with Cody from Wage War and uh, cut my vocal on it? And that, so they did, and they sent it back, and then the breakdown was like 20 times better, which is the one that, that is on the record. And uh, that was it, man. He, he cut his vocal down there, and he did such a good job. He didn't have to come up here to recut. And he just does the screams on the song. Um, but that was it, man, and it's just a funny song about kind of, you know, poking fun at everybody saying you need a radio song, you need a radio song, you know, and that whole deal. And, and it's just a, having a sense of humor about that. Yeah, and hopefully nobody's telling you you need a radio song at this point. Not so much anymore. <laughs> maybe, maybe a couple years ago. Okay, so just kind of wrapping up here. What do you want to... Oh, well, first we got one more song to talk about, too. Kill Shit Till I Die. Kill Shit Till I Die. Man, that's a hit. <laughs> How'd that song come together, dude? That me and Hunter Phelps came up with that idea. Uh, we were deer hunting in Alabama, and um, 
I don't even remember. I just said, I think I said it, like, I'm going to kill shit till I die as a joke. And, and we were like, man, that'd be kind of a funny song to write. And at first we wanted to write it like a really country song and, like, talk about, like, killing, like, killing everything, like, killing a beer and killing time and killing fucking animals or whatever, you know, deer or whatever. And then I, he and I got in the room with David Garcia again, and David played that riff. Um, and I was like, damn, that's pretty cool. And I was like, what if we did Kill Shit Till I Die to that? And uh, so we did. And, and it's actually, man, if you dig into the lyric and read the lyric, it's one of the deeper songs on the record. The chorus is like, um, the back half is, it basically is talking about if the world ends, do you have the means to, to survive if the shit hits the fan? Or like it says in the song, if the Walmarts hit the fan. And, um, and uh, it's like, you won't find me uh, strapped for backstrap, crying at that crashing NASDAQ. You can bet your country ass that I'm gonna kill shit till I die. And it's basically like I know how to survive, you know, if there's a zombie apocalypse or if the fucking world comes to an end one day. Yeah, you're a good guy to know. It's like uh, that's that's I I'm not so much a hunter. Yeah. I go fishing a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, with my buddy, but uh, still kill a fish if you eat it, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what do you want to convey to people? who haven't ever listened to you before that are looking at you for rock, what do you want to explain to them about this record? Um, I mean, you know, if you're a rock, it's, there's something for everybody. Um, and, uh, man, I don't know. That's a great question. I just hope you, I hope you like it. I mean, I do, I think there is something there for everybody. And I think the biggest thing that I can convey is at this time, at this moment, right now in my career and in my musical life this is the music that perfectly describes my sound and who I am and how I want to go about doing both genres um and and uh to even some of the heavier songs like listen to the some of the lyrics because even on the the rock side there are some songs that's got kind of a deeper lyric that's sort of cool if you dig into it so um yeah I just I want to do both, and I want to do both forever, and and uh, I hope that people can can hear that with this record. I think it's like the, this will be one of the more you know of all the records I hope to put out one day. I think this one will be a big staple because it, it even more than a rock kind of perfectly defines where I'm at right now with my music. Well, we're certainly rooting for you, and just a few rapid fire questions here to finish things up. All right, I love it. Yep. What do you do to get away from all the noise of the entertainment business? I uh, I fish, but I also uh, I collect uh, Native American artifacts, arrowheads and stuff. They're That's they're awesome. all around here, man. And I, I find loose dirt, riverbanks, whatever, and, and and I collect arrowheads. It's really cool. That's very cool. What's something you're very grateful for? Uh, my wife. She's the best, man. Scoring she them fucking, points, bro. Bro. <laughs> no joke, man. She's she's. I got a good one, dude. I don't I don't. She's fucking awesome. That's so, awesome. Yeah. That's great. Thankful. Congratulations on your Thank recent you. wedding, too. Thank you very much, man. Shout out to Ozzy Osbourne for coming in on that. Man, dude. right. <laughs> That's yeah. pretty cool. All right, so uh, what's something you want to improve or get better at this year? Um, you know, honestly, playing guitar. I, I, I got to a point where I uh, was a really good acoustic player, and then I quit bringing my acoustic to co-writes because you write with so many people that yeah. already have shit. And so I got, I'm not good at guitar anymore, and I'd love to get better so that I can be more comfortable playing live. Do you ever wonder if you're living inside the Truman Show? Yeah. <laughs> so do I. Or some sort of simulation. <laughs> yeah. I do, yes, 100%. There's too many fucking weird things. <laughs> <laughs> Who are some of the rock artists that have been really supportive of you making this move? Oh, um, Jeremy McKinnon is one of them. 
Chris Franzak from Attila. Yo, shout out to Attila, dude. Fuck yeah, bro. Um, uh, Caleb Shomo. Beartooth. Uh, yes. He, he's been a big one, dude. He'll text me out of the Great blue. Great songwriter. Some of the nicest shit, dude. 100%. Um, rock, rock guys. Uh, Johnny Frank from Bill Murray, for sure. Um, yeah, I think to name a few, that's, that's good. I mean, those guys are, those were the guys, like, that personally came out and were like, like, Jeremy was like, bro, the fact that you have, like, Dead Buck as a rock, as a song on rock radio right now is, like, cool. Just showing some love and, like, giving me some confidence that it can be done, you know, that I can do the rock thing, I guess. You have a tour coming up. I do. When does that kick off? February 15th. Uh, the Mockingbird and the Crow Tour. It's the one time I'm going to look at the camera. Yeah. Uh, um, we start in Indianapolis. I think, and it goes until, uh, I think, like, May or something, and it kind of crosses over with Morgan Wallen's stadium tour. Um, but, yeah, my, my first real big-named headliner tour um, is this year, and I'm really stoked about it. Yeah, we're going to come to the kickoff of that, most likely. Fuck Dude, yeah. thank you for doing this. Dude, absolutely, man. Thank you for making time. You're absolutely. a legend. We are in your corner as hard as we can possibly be rooting for you. I love it, man. Um, congratulations on the new record. You've worked your ass off. You deserve Thank it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yep. And we'll, we'll, I expect it to be a very big week for you. Fuck yeah, dude. I'm excited. <laughs> we'll see. Who, who are we? Are we up against anybody? Is fucking Beyonce going to drop a record? We're all alone. All alone. <laughs>